Laser sights enhance and maintain your accuracy in a time of crisis, preventing tunnel vision and allowing quick target acquisition in awkward shooting positions. Crimson Trace, making laser sight standard equipment. Learn more at crimsontrace.com. Today on Tom Gresham's Gun Talk, it's been 10 years since the Supreme Court's decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. What exactly did the ruling mean for gun rights? And where are we a decade later? Plus, call in with your questions, comments, and range reports at 866-TALK-GUN. And now, here's Tom Gresham. All right, welcome. It is Gun Talk, and I am Tom Gresham. I am your host, of course, because that's what we do here. We talk about guns. If you'd like to join us, be a part of the party, give me a holler, 866-TALK-GUN, or just dial me a Tom Talk Gun. Now, here's the deal. We are actually on the 26th is the official date, 10 years into the Heller decision, the famous Supreme Court decision that uh, so many of us hoped for, and I'm not sure we actually counted on, but it was monumental. And then, of course, the follow-up with the McDonald decision uh, really made a ton of difference. And yet, there's always the uh, and yet. And who better to talk about the Heller decision than the man who stood there before the Supreme Court and actually argued the case, who joined right now by Alan Gura, who, of course, uh, was the guy right there. Hey, Alan, how you doing? Doing great, Tom. Thanks again for having me back. You bet. So we talk about this being 10 years from Heller, but actually it started at least a few years before that when Robert Levy uh, started to, out of the blue, says, hey, let's do this thing. How did that happen? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Tom. Uh, essentially, for, for a long time, the federal courts had uh, rubber-stamped this very casual offhand view that the Second Amendment only protects the so-called collective right of people to have guns while they're serving in a state military organization or the right of states to organize a militia to resist the federal government, which is kind of a strange theory if you think about the history of mm-hmm. our country. But in any event, it was, the Second Amendment was never really examined in much detail or much depth, at least not by courts. Academics were a different uh, subject. Uh, anybody who studied the Second Amendment in a serious fashion understood that it secured an individual right to keep and bear arms, uh, including primarily for self-defense, that this was the framers' ratification of an old right understood in English law, which had existed uh, for a long time and was upheld by English courts. It was reflected in the Declaration of Rights that you know William and Mary acceded to. And it was something that the framers thought was important. They codified it, yet it lay dormant for, for a variety of reasons. And and in a sort of sloppy, offhand way, it was it was ignored and shunted off to the side. Now it was almost mocked uh, by a lot mocked. of yeah. If, I mean, law schools, everybody else is kind of like, yeah, there's the Second Amendment, but don't pay any attention to that. That's right. And you have to understand, for for much of our country's history, we didn't have any federal gun laws. Not until you know the twentieth century, there were there were just not mm-hmm. many federal gun laws to to be challenged. And uh, ever since the um, uh, the aftermath of the Civil War. The Supreme Court had, had held in large part that the Bill of Rights didn't actually bind the states, and it took until the 20th century for, for even the, the, the Supreme Court to acknowledge that grudgingly, bit by bit, uh, the Bill of Rights pre- protects people against action by their state governments. Mm-hmm. And so even if you had some state regulation of, of guns in the 19th century going forward, there wasn't really a role to play for the Second Amendment. And also, of course, many states had their own right to keep and bear arm provisions in their constitutions, which were being enforced mm-hmm. uh, more or less from time to time. So the Second Amendment never really got litigated. 
there was not much opportunity to litigate it. And uh, it was mocked by people who have a different point of view as to its value. And, uh, and that's sort of where things went until uh, we got to the late 20th century. And then by the 1990s, early 2000s for certain, the academic viewpoint had shifted. It had become the standard view by people who seriously studied the Constitution that, yes, the Second Amendment does secure a meaningful individual right. And the breakthrough came in, uh, I believe it was 2001, when the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals became the first federal appellate court to hold, in a case called Emerson versus U.S., that yes, the Second Amendment actually protects an individual right. The court had a chance to look at it. I was it. actually in the courtroom when Emerson was being argued. Uh, I mean, I sat there in New Orleans and listened to it. It was breathtaking to hear the government attorney say, yes, no one in this country has a right to own a gun. Just boom, yep. there it was. You went, whoa. Well, it, it certainly was a, a revolution. It created a circuit split. That is, finally, you had federal appellate courts disagreeing about a very important constitutional matter. That's the kind of thing that typically ends up sooner or later before the Supreme Court. And so a pair of lawyers, uh, Clark Neely and, and Steve Simpson, both at the time were at the Libertarian Institute for Justice, looked at this and said, well, wait a minute. This is now an opportunity. It's also dangerous because um, there's going to be a Second Amendment case. And uh, if, it's, if, if it's litigated the same way that most Second Amendment cases are being litigated, namely sort of a last chance, uh, you know, uh, kitchen sink kind of argument made by criminal defendants, uh, we may not fare so well. So why don't we design a case that is a, a professional, dedicated, strategic litigation case um, of the kind that we do with other issues, only we do it with the Second Amendment. They took the idea to Bob Levy. Uh, Bob said... Uh, Great, let's organize it. They started uh, plotting this. I came on board. Uh, they got me to join them as, as lead counsel uh, because they needed, to, you know, obviously more people to litigate a case such as this. And we put the case together, and off we went. Let me just jump in because I want people to understand. The way you guys designed this, this was really designed as a civil rights case. It was very similar to, like, the school desegregation cases. Uh, you, you kind of patterned it along those lines, didn't you? Absolutely. We looked for... A number of things. We looked for very sympathetic people, people who represented a fair cross-section of the community that ordinary Americans, whatever their views on guns, even if they, hopefully if they have no views on guns whatsoever, could look at our, at our plaintiffs and say, wow, these are, these are real-world Americans with real problems and real solutions being offered by the Constitution. Also, we looked for um, a law that was ripe for challenge. Uh, D.C. offered the craziest, most insane, uh, draconian set of, of gun laws, far and away the most restrictive. Uh, of anywhere in the United States, the courts seemed like they were open to the notion. And this is something that we'd always stressed, and I, I, I can't say this enough. We were not assured of victory, and we never approached this in a cavalier fashion, like, oh, of course we're going to win. This was never in the bag. Uh, it was something that where we felt that the risk of doing nothing was worse than the risk of doing something. We felt like we had a, as good a chance as we could imagine uh, to to win, that doesn't mean that we were guaranteed a victory. But our but our fear but, but was the problem. The problem, Alan, was if you lost, it would lock in at the Supreme Court level a loss and could really have uh, been terrible for Second Amendment. And I know that there were forces out there that told you guys, "Don't do this. Don't do this." Because if we lose, it's going to be terrible. That is true, but you know what? Um, if that if if that loss was going to occur, it would have occurred anyway. Mm -hmm. The question was. Uh, not just how do we maximize the ability to protect the Second Amendment, but how do we minimize the risk? 
because there were criminal defendants who were looking at Emerson, making these arguments. Mm. Uh, shortly after we filed the uh, the case in Washington, D.C., the D.C. Circuit actually heard a Second Amendment challenge by a, by a drug dealer. Um, they held in the end that he hadn't preserved the Second Amendment arguments in the lower courts and they didn't reach it. Uh, and actually, he wound up winning on his Fourth Amendment arguments. But the, the fact is that these arguments are being made all the time. They're being made by uh, by criminal defendants, by people who are maybe not um, uh, the best uh, suited to make landmark constitutional arguments, maybe people who don't understand or have, you know, not not the best approach to this type of litigation. You can't say it. I can't. Lawyers who are not as good as you guys and don't think are 3D chess the way you guys do. Perhaps. Uh, but more than that, look, everything is a specialty in the law and with everything else. There are, there are many things in the law that I wouldn't touch because I don't know how to do them and I don't feel like learning them. And if I had a problem with you know, and just about anything in the law, I would refer to somebody else because I don't do everything, and nobody does everything. Mm. Uh, and but, but the one thing that Clark and Steve and Bob and I understood was strategic civil rights litigation, and that's how we that's what we brought to the table. And we felt that that would give us the best chance of getting a good decision. It doesn't mean that we were cocky and assured of stuff, but we were, the one thing we were certain of, if there's one thing we were sure of, is there will be a decision, okay? And someone's going to bring the case, the court will eventually take the case. There's no to avoid the question. So what kind of case do you want deciding it? Uh, a good case or, you know, not so good case? So fast forward me to you've done all your work. It's taken you know, years to get to the Supreme Court. You've gotten through the circuit court, uh, and now you're standing in front of the Supreme Court. You're starting to argue this. What's in Alan Gura's mind? As I'm arguing, well, it's, it's it's interesting. You know, once you're you're arguing in front of the Supreme Court, as the argument starts, you're just in the you're in the – you're, in the zone. You're just answering the questions, trying to, to, to get the best uh, uh, argument out there, and it's over really fast. It's, uh, uh, you only have 30 minutes uh, per side. Mm-hmm. You have uh, nine justices potentially asking you questions. Uh, it was what we'd call hot bench. That is, uh, the, the justices obviously had done a lot of homework and, and were uh, interested in, uh, in poking holes in, in either side of the case. So it was a, it was a very uh, interesting argument. It was a... Um, it was it was over very fast. It was an honor to do it. it. It felt great, and I think we all left that courtroom feeling like we had a you know likely chance of, of prevailing. And in fact, we did. We wound up getting a, a terrific opinion. I wish it were followed more frequently. Uh, but the opinion itself, uh, people like to pick at it and find certain imperfections or things they wish we had done different. I think on balance, this was a home run for the Second Amendment. You couldn't get a, a stronger opinion. And just because not everybody chooses to understand it or follow it, it doesn't change the fact that right. the text of what is now published in the U.S. reports is very good for, for uh, the second of it. All right. Well, Alan, hold that thought for a second, because when we come back, I want to talk about, okay, yeah, that's what happened, but where are we now? It's 10 years later, and are we uh, reaping the benefits of this, or what's going on? We're talking with Alan Gura, the lead attorney in the famous Heller decision, and then, of course, the follow-on the McDonald decision, which uh, incorporated the, this Second Amendment right to the states. We will uh, be back in just a minute with more gun talk. The pistol that redefined pocket carry just got even better. The Ruger LCP-2 has improved sights, an easy-to-rack slide, a larger textured grip surface for a secure grip and recoil reduction, and a short, crisp, single-action trigger pull for real-world accuracy. It's so small and light that there's no reason to ever leave home without your LCP-2. A serious pistol in a pint-sized package. Learn more about the LCP-2 at Ruger.com. 
Tactical professionals who put their lives on the line every day depend on Surefire. Since 1979, Surefire has designed, machined, and assembled the finest flashlights and weapon-mounted lights right here in the U.S. From everyday carry flashlights with 1,200 lumens and mil-spec hard anodized finishes to the most reliable weapon lights on the market for duty use or your home defense firearm, Surefire has what you need. American-built, American-strong. Visit Surefire.com. All right, we're back. We're talking with Alan Gura about the uh, 10th anniversary of the famous Heller decision. Alan, I guess we ought to mention just briefly, I mean, the the moment you guys won, got the decision on Heller, you turned right around and and filed, did you not, on the McDonald? Uh, That is correct. Uh, As soon as the decision came out, I ran out of that courtroom. I went to the uh, public information office of the Supreme Court, got a written copy of the opinion, thumbed through it for any kind of clues, anything they might have to say about uh, the next question, which is, does this apply to the states? We know it applies to the federal government, but the Bill of Rights does not apply to the states directly. You need the 14th Amendment to bring it in. And what, is, what does Heller say about that? And there's a footnote there that suggested that they were, of course, aware of this and quite open to the idea. And so I picked up the phone and I called my colleague in Chicago, David Siegel, great attorney there, uh, and said, file it. <laughs> we had the case ready to go in McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, it, and every, look, it was, this was not a mystery. Everybody knew that look, most gun laws exist at the state and local level. There are some federal gun laws, obviously. We all know about those. But gun control is largely a state and local project. And the question, any time you have any kind of constitutional right, uh, is uh, who, who does this bind? Uh, we know the Second Amendment controls the federal government. Washington, D.C. is a federal uh, district, so uh, it, it, it works there. Does it apply to Chicago, which had an identical handgun ban? It was the same handgun ban as in mm. D.C. They didn't have the functional firearms ban, but the handgun ban was was definitely there. So everybody knew that Chicago was the next most natural place to go and fight the battle over whether this actually applies to states and localities. And so we were off. So, you know, two years later, you win McDonald's. So now the, uh, the Heller decision is incorporated. It actually applies to the states. One thing I'd like to touch on here, because everybody talks about there's a 5-4 decision, but there was a little thing that people I didn't, don't understand uh, is the part where people say, well, you know, the, uh, the Second Amendment is not really an individual right. It's the old collective rights deal. Did not the Supreme Court uh, do away with that concept with, like, a 9-0 decision? They were unanimous in saying this is an individual right? Yeah, by, by, by the time Heller came about to be litigated in the Supreme Court, the other side had shifted uh, its views. They were no longer interested in in the old collective rights version, mm. uh, but they, they, they came up with what's been called the sophisticated collective right which is the idea that, well, it's an individual right, but it's an individual right to have a gun so long as you're in the militia. Think of it as um, if you are serving the state military force, you have the right to have a gun. Now, that's kind of a bizarre concept if you think about it. If you're in a military organization and I suppose your your commander says, uh, you know, you don't get to operate the gun, you get to peel potatoes or uh, you know, watch mm-hmm. the computer screen. I mean, look, there's a lot of different roles for people to play in the military. Not all of them involve carrying guns or right. using guns. Um, you know, can someone go to court and say, no, I have the right to have a gun, even if, if the military tells me I, I, I shouldn't have one in a particular role? It's kind of strange. Kind of, kind of odd. Typically, you know, the, the military does provide people with guns when it wants 
Yeah. The soldiers should have guns. If, if they guns. want you to have a gun, so, it's going to give you a gun. <laughs> right. It doesn't say, fine, you know, go to Cabela's and buy a gun. No, this is what you get. <laughs> okay, so we got McDonald. Now we are... Let's uh, look into the rearview mirror or kind of see where we are right now. Ten years later, at the time, we thought this is going to be great because the, the lower courts are now going to be bound by this, and we're going to they're all going to be saying, yeah, okay, we may not like it, but we have to rule according to Heller. That's not exactly what's been happening. No, unfortunately not. Uh, there's one thing that we got wrong, and, and when I say we, I mean not just our side and our friends, but I think our adversaries as well. I mean, if there's one thing that everybody... Um, misunderstood, didn't predict accurately, is the very stiff level of the resistance. I hate to say most federal judges have not accepted Heller. They they have not resigned themselves to this. They they believe it's illegitimate. They think it's wrong. And they have taken the posture of, go ahead and make me do it. And so Heller is good law in some courts that choose to follow it. And it doesn't mean we're going to win every single case or that we're always going to get the result we want. But there are some courts that faithfully apply it or at least seek to apply it. And there are some that are more results-oriented where you get opinions that, to me, read as though they're you know, not, not perhaps the best interpretation of, of Heller. And in fact, this is not just me saying it, but there have been some very liberal commentators who are not fans of, of the Heller decision who have said quite plainly that Heller has become symbolic in many ways and that courts are offering not uh, the most reasonable interpretation of the case, but the one that, that is you know, most palatable to society. And they think that's great, of course, that, that lower courts can selectively ignore uh, a precedent that is uncomfortable for them. Can I offer that the problem there is that, you know, the courts are saying, yeah, okay, we're going to rule, we're going to basically ignore Heller, and if you want us to stop doing this, then the Supreme Court's going to have to take some action, but we're not even getting that. So, that's right. The Supreme Court has, has uh, quite apart from the Second Amendment issues and debates, the Supreme Court has, uh, over the years, sh- begun shrinking its docket. So they take very few cases these days. There are many great, important, and urgent matters that need to be decided by the high court that are not being decided. The lower courts are not stupid. They understand that the likelihood of getting Supreme Court review of even even important, urgent cases is uh, minimal. So from their perspective, it makes sense to just decide the case however they wish to decide it and let the chips fall where they may. There's really not much... um, concern about being overturned or about mm. being uh, policed by the high court. And, uh, of course, some of the justices have noticed this, too. Every once in a while, you'll, you'll see some just, some justice right uh, dissenting from the denial of, of, of review in a case, saying, right. well, we really need to take this. What are we doing? Uh, but, uh, but the court does not take very many cases these days, and especially when it comes to the Second Amendment, it seems to be very averse to taking anything. And so the message is, the lower court, do what you want. Uh, that's going to change at some point, Tom. I mean, that's not going to be forever. You'd have to imagine at some point in the future history of our country, the Supreme Court will take another Second Amendment case. Uh, but until that happens, it's really, you know, Heller has become optional. So what, if anything, can we do at this point? I mean, my, my brain leaps ahead to say, of course, if we can confirm more justices who would like to hear the Second Amendment or believe the Second Amendment or lower court uh, judges... So we can, you know, get some of these lower court decisions because, as we know, 
the lower courts, the appellate courts, are basically where the decisions are being made, and it's exceedingly rare that it gets to the Supreme Court. I mean, is that our only course right now, is trying to fill some of those seats? The selection and confirmation of federal judges is in some sense a political process. The judges are nominated by the president, they're confirmed uh, or not by the senators, and American people vote for senators and for presidents. So this is, you know, you have to make clear to your elected officials that you are paying attention. This is important to you. You want judges who are going to implement the Constitution. You can't control the outcome in every single legislative battle over this bill or that bill. And you have no idea what future laws will be proposed or imagined by future legislatures and congresses. But what you can do uh, is make sure that whenever the law, whatever it happens to be, gets challenged, uh, that it will go before a judge who is committed to enforcing the text and, and original meaning and history and tradition contained in our Constitution. And if you have a judge who is committed to that, you will be okay more often than not. If you have a judge who thinks the Constitution is just a bunch of words into which they can insert whatever policy views they'd like, then it means nothing, and uh, good luck. You know, I, I hope <laughs> I hope that things work out for you. That's all we can really do. All right. Well, Alan, I just wanted to uh, thank you for everything that you've done. Uh, we have grown to be friends. I've been able to work with you on some things. Uh, I appreciate your dedication and your hard work and your not just smarts, but your common sense, because a lot of this takes some common sense of okay, what, what is actually accomplishable, if you will. And I just want to thank you for everything that you've done. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I, I love you as well. Obviously, you do fantastic work on behalf of your arms and uh, obviously a very fine human being. I wish I could meet you, not just on the show, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I but know. Well, we'll Tom's get together. Here. Now, will you, will you be at the uh, Gun Rights Policy Conference this year? It looks as though I will be. Oh, it'll be great. All right, we'll, we'll have a chance to get together then. Excellent. All right. All right. Again, Alan Gura, thank you so much. Uh, you... Truly are one of the heroes, or at least one of my heroes, well, i got to tell you. Well, thank you so much. Bye. Oh, man, that was fun. Alan Gore is always uh, great to talk with. Talk about a smart guy. I'm glad he's on our side, i got to tell you. Yeah, we're not there yet. Uh, Heller is important, but we're not getting the support that we need in the lower courts. We'll see. Maybe uh, putting some more justices in, maybe some more judges in the seats was what we have to do. Maybe that's a role for each of us to have in talking with our elected representatives. Tom Gresham here. It's Gun Talk, 866-TALK-GUN. Be right back. Gun Talk encourages you to support the local sporting goods store, gun stores, ATV dealers, and other local businesses in your area who advertise on this station and Gun Talk. Only together can we protect our rights. You're listening to Washington Times Opinion Page regular contributor, Tom Gresham. All righty, back with you. Tom Gresham here. 866-TALK-GUN or just eh, easier, Tom Talk Gun. Just dial Tom Talk Gun. You get you right in here. Looking for range reports, your thoughts on uh, new calibers, old calibers. I see, and we'll talk about this in just a little bit. Believe it or not, there is yet another 6.5 cartridge being introduced. Do we need another 6.5 cartridge? We have the 6.5 by 55. 
we have the 264 Winchester Magnum. We have the 26 Nosler. We have the 260 Nosler. We have, oh, let's see. Um, there's a, God, the Creedmoor, of course, is the, the darling of the day. There's probably another half dozen 264, 264, uh, 308, 260, uh, 6.5, uh, 284, the 6.5, 30-06, you know, 6.5-06, it goes on and on. Why do we need another one? Uh, well, yeah, because people buy them, because people use them. We'll talk about that. as we, You know, here's a question for you. And I guess it probably breaks down on uh, to different groups. Are you one of those that just can't wait to see what's new and what's cool and what's, I want the latest, greatest? Or are you comfortable holding on to what you have and looking at new stuff and saying, does this really do something for me? Or is it just a lipstick with pig, you know, a lipstick on a pig? Is it, uh, I don't know. Sometimes you go, well, you know, I just don't see that. And, and I'm guilty, man. I've been around long enough. I've seen some goofy cartridges being introduced. And then one comes along, you go, yeah, another one. And then a while later, you're going, well, I don't know. That's pretty nice. <laughs> That's happened to me two or three times. You go, well, maybe I'll have to get that one, too. Let's see. News from the industry. Freedom Munitions, ammunition company out of Lewiston, Idaho, files for bankruptcy. Um, Chapter 11. So they're saying uh, Freedom Munitions will continue to manufacture ammunition, ship orders, and provide the best best service possible. Uh, They said, we are still here and plan on maintaining a steady path of manufacturing cost-effective ammunition and moving forward uh, towards a positive future of freedom munitions. Now, one of the big stories that unfortunately did not get very much coverage in the media, surprise, surprise, uh, not really, <laughs> but it got coverage in the gun media. There was a, a shooting in the Seattle area at a, at a Walmart. And not to draw it out too much, but a guy carjacked a 16-year-old girl and then went to a Walmart in that area there, went in and shot, fired some shots into a, a display case, and then tried to carjack another car, shot the driver of that car, at which point it wasn't the police who showed up, not that they wouldn't have and were coming, but it was just a guy who showed up, a, a GGW, a G, good guy with a gun, GGWAG, GGWAG, good guy with a gun, GGWAG. The thing is, and he goes up and, well, he killed the guy. He killed the bad guy, the carjacker, the guy who just shot the guy. He stopped it right there, made it happen, made it happen right there. Not calling, not waiting, not worrying, not hiding, not cringing, not cowering. Who was this guy? Well, he's a pastor. What? Yeah. He's a pastor. And he's also an EMT. As soon as he shot this guy and killed him, he went over and started helping the uh, driver of the car that was carjacked, medically helping him. He was interviewed. It was interesting. He said, it's not something I wanted to do. 
but I felt like I had to. He says, I, I, I carry a gun not because I want to shoot somebody, but I want to protect people. I want to protect myself. It was exactly what you or I would have said, and probably what you or I would have done. You see somebody trying to carjack a car and shoot somebody. What's your course of action? Well, the answer is always, it depends. Do I have my family with me? Am I alone? That's a factor. Do I want to draw them into a gunfight? Uh, Is there a way to get away from them and go try to deal with this? Do I gather them up and move them away? But if you're alone and you see this going on and you see a bad guy shooting good people, I have kind of changed my viewpoint on this. I really have. Used to say, well, no, not my problem. I'm going to get away. I'm not going to inject myself into the situation. You never know what's going on. And that's certainly true. There are disputes. I mean, there are a lot of things. But in this case, you see a guy going like from car to car and shooting people. Going, okay, I think I got a handle on this one. I don't think this is a case of who's the bad guy here. So there you go. So what's your course of action? You see something like this going on? And here's, I guess, the reason I asked the question is this. The time to decide is not when it's happening. The time to decide is right now. After you've thought over, okay, well, what if this and what if that? And let's go down the road for 20 or 30 or 40 different possibilities. It could be this. Then I would do this. It could be this. Then I would do this. If this is happening, then I would do that. Uh, you know, what if this is there a place to find cover? Uh, can I shoot him from behind cover? Do I engage him? In this case, uh, the pastor saw what was going on, acted appropriately, and oh yes, saved lives and got almost no media coverage. Because why? Because the media doesn't want the public to know that good guys with guns save lives every day. Thousands and thousands of times, not a year, not a month, not a week, a day. Thousands of times a day, good people with guns use, gun, use guns, good people with guns use their guns to stop crime, save themselves. Not according to me, not according to the NRA, that's according to the CDC and the research that they've been doing. Two, two point six, something like that. Two point six, uh, two point six million times a year. Amazing stuff. All right, here's the question on the floor. You see something like this going on. Where are you now? Do you engage? Do you sit back? What is your go-to course of action? Eight six six Talk Gun. Get you in here. I'm Tom Gresham. Back with more gun talk. Crimson Trace announces the revolutionary link, the world's first wireless laser in white light system. Combining a green laser at 300 lumen light with instinctive activation for AR-type modern sporting rifles, Link offers wireless control of the laser and light from the ergonomic replacement grip, eliminating the need to reach for the rifle's forend. Link. Smart. Simple. Secure. Available now. Visit crimsontrace.com to find a dealer near you. 
For more than 70 years, Timney Triggers has been enhancing the shooter's experience. Whether it's a local competition, a day at the range, or even the hunt of a lifetime, setting the standard in aftermarket triggers, Timney is now producing more than 170 models of triggers for bolt-action rifles, shotguns, AR rifles, and semi-automatic rifles. Proudly made in the USA since 1946. Find your new trigger at TimneyTriggers.com. Hi, this is Tom Gresham from Gun Talk. America is losing critical wildlife habitat at a rate of one football field every hour. It's happening on the Louisiana coast, but it's critical to all sportsmen and conservationists. These precious wetlands provide winter habitat for more than 10 million ducks and geese annually. Waterfowl that migrate north through dozens of states. Don't shrug it off. Get involved. You can help. Visit vanishingparadise.org. Attacks happen every day. How will you react? See real people put into real-life criminal attack situations on First Person Defender. Discover what works and what doesn't. Kidnapping, ATM robbery, home invasion, and other attacks. Learn how to save your life and the lives of your family. Get the entire first season on DVD at ShopGunTalk.com. Get prepared. ShopGunTalk.com. All the refinements in Smith & Wesson's M&P M2.0 Pistol Series shrunk to a perfect carry size in the new compact version. 4-inch barrel, light crisp M2.0 trigger, aggressively textured grip for enhanced control, four interchangeable palm swell inserts, two magazines, lifetime service policy, 15-round 9mm mag, 13-round 40 mag, the M&P M2.0 Compact Pistol. More at smith-wesson.com. By the way, First Person Defender is back. If you check on uh, YouTube, you can see that uh, we have our first ones up. This is a couple's year where we have two people, teams, going into situations and getting attacked or something, carjacked, home invasions, uh, robbery attempts, all the rest of it, uh, and we see how they do, and then we coach them up and give them some help, some ways to deal with the situation, and then we put them through another situation, another a similar scenario. It's never exactly the same. And then we see what they do. It's pretty cool. Uh, First Person Defender, check it out. It's on uh, YouTube, Roku, Amazon Fire, on Gun Talk's Facebook page, uh, Apple TV, a lot of other places. Check it out, guntalk.com. Let's see. Oh, yeah, we're doing giveaways. Uh, i got to get this in because we like to give away things. Let's see, the Brand Avalanche giveaway. Uh, go to guntalk.com slash win. We're giving away four different price packages. Each package has uh, guns and ammo and lots of other stuff out there. So go to guntalk.com slash win. Uh, this one's interesting because it's a continuation of something that's really caused us uh, concern. And that is the slide fire people, when they, they close their doors, that's the bump stock people. But the bank that they process their orders from, and they had a lot of orders, according to slide fire, sitting on $1.6 million and the bank won't release the money. Say what? Yeah. They're saying that Utah-based Merrick Bank Corporation is trying to, quote, shield themselves from tangential, hypothetical, unviable, and currently non-existent liability in personal injury lawsuits. Uh, close quote. Let's see. So, Slidefire 
can't get its money from its bank. The bank says, we're going to hold on to the money. I guess that's what they're saying. So hold on to the money in case we get sued from something that happens with your product. Huh. Um, the left is pretty open these days. They used to talk about this stuff behind closed doors. Now they're saying, you know, the way we can get rid of guns is we can starve them of funds. And so they are making calls on and going to financial institutions, banks, credit card companies, uh, investment companies, and saying you don't want to be involved with these guys, people like these people. And here's how it happens. You're a gun store, and you all of a sudden, you can't find a bank that will handle your finances. You can't even bank, much less process credit card you know, charges. Well, then you're out of business. That's the goal. They used to do it quietly. They called it Operation Choke Point, and it was uh, coming out of the Clinton administration or the, rather the Obama administration. And now they're just open. They say, this is the plan. We can't get anything done in Congress. Well, gee, that would be because the people don't want it. So they say, well, we'll just go to the financial institutions and we'll just starve them to death. And whether they're gun manufacturers or gun stores or accessory makers or people who make stocks or people who make scopes or people who make anything or sell parts and accessories online, we will simply deny them of the ability to process credit card orders, and they won't be able to get a bank account, so they won't be able to be in business. So voila, at the end of the day, we've gotten rid of gun sales. That's the plan, and that, and they're open about it. That's the amazing part. They're open about it. Uh, let's go talk with uh, Bill in Liberty, Missouri. Hey, Bill, how you doing, man? Hey, Tom, I, I just wanted your opinion on how to handle this. I tried not to be rude, but I've been in, in more than one gun store, and this one gun store I've been in several times. And and here in the last few days, this has happened twice, where they actually point the muzzle at you, and I cleared my throat, and I stepped over out of the way, and, and I know the guy looked at me when I did that, but I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just don't get this. People, you know, that sell guns and oh, you're, around you're, guns. You're, you're, talking about the, you're talking about the people who work at the store doing it. Yes, yes. Okay, here's, here's how you handle that, Bill. Here's what I do. I would start off by being real. Uh, my first one would say, you know, I really wouldn't mind if you didn't point that gun at me. Very, and then the second time it happens, I would at the very top of my voice, as loud as I could, I'd say, hey, don't point that gun at me. Simple. And yeah. if they have a problem with that, then I can find me another place to, to shop. Yeah, it was just, you know, I mean, it seemed like I noticed what, what they was doing. They was they was looking at other parts of the gun and not the muzzle. You know yeah, what I mean? Well, you know what? And that's what you do. You, you you have to get their attention. You First, you do it kindly. Don't point that muzzle at me, buddy. You know, if it doesn't happen, then a big old yell. And after that, you tell the owner, I'm not coming in here again until you train your people not to point deadly weapons at people. Simple as that. All right. Hey, I appreciate the call. Question, have you ever had somebody at a store point a gun at you? If so, probably so. What did you do? 866-TALK-GUN. Right, let's 
Let's uh, drop down line three. I want to get Casey in here from Rogue River, Oregon. Hey, Casey, what happened, man? Hey, yeah, it was like uh, within the hour. There's a real nice park here in Rogue River. It's got absolutely kid-friendly, and I took my four-year-old grandson down there. He was playing in the sprinkler that the park guys had going. Next thing I know, these three huge dogs are coming up on me, and I had my dog leashed off to a pole. And these two these two guys, that, for lack of a better term, just kind of set my, my hair rising on the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, I said, hey, get your dog. And the guy says, oh, my dog's fine. I said, how am I supposed to know that? Am I supposed to know your dog's okay? Your dog's too close to my grandson, and my dog is a little guy, right? Then the guy started mouthing off, and I'm like going, you're antagonizing me. You need to leave. So I'm packing a nine on my hip underneath my, my jacket, but I'm not going for it at all. And, I'm, you know, the guy's getting a little closer, so I had a choice. My choice was pull out my cell phone and make a fake 911 call and say, hey, it's a red Chevy Suburban heading down the road, license plate touch and such, and, man, they hauled out of there pretty quick. Really? So I have to assume these guys were less than honorable individuals, but mm-hmm. it was kind of mm-hmm. kind of coincidental. I'm pulling out of the park. I'm listening to your story, your show that I try and catch every Sunday. And I just had an instance where I'm packing a gun and I need to get out of the situation. If I had to, if the situation escalated, I had a way to get me and my grandson out of there. Well, I like so. the way you handle it. You're trying to find every way you could to not have to go to gun. And at that point, I don't think there was anything justifiable to pull a gun out. Uh, pulling out the, the phone, doing the fake 911 call works. Of course, the other thing is just to go get your, uh, you know, get that little guy and take him and say, look, we're out of here. We're leaving. Uh, just pull yourself out of the situation. But congrats. I think you handle it real well. Way to go, Casey. I pr- and I appreciate that report. Bruce is in Tioga, North Dakota on four. Bruce, carjacking. You're looking at it. You're trying to figure out what's going on. What do you do? First thing I do is step back and take a good long look at what's going on, who's around. It's the same kind of thing that happened uh, in Aurora in the theater move, in the theater situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I do is I step back and evaluate the situation is me drawing down. Is that actually going to do good or is that going to make things worse? If it's going to, if it's going to make things worse, sometimes the best thing to do is to back away. Mm-hmm, no doubt. But if it's, uh, if there's a situation that, that obviously that you've got a good clean field of fire and, and someone is definitely in, in mortal peril, it's time to step up to the plate. There's way too many people in this world that don't, and I, I'm a firm believer that that's one of the reasons why we're having so much problems anymore. Well, of course, the, the interesting part, and I agree with you completely on, on your tactic here, evaluate, see what's going on. Uh, you know, Maybe the person you see with a gun is actually a good guy responding to a bad guy. You need to sort that out. But if he's going like from person to person and shooting people or going from car to car and shooting people in their cars— Okay, I think we've got a pretty good handle on that one. Um, now, do you go? Do you stay? What do you do? I don't know. It depends on your makeup. depends on your training. depends on your level of commitment. depends on an awful lot of different things going on. And so the answer is always, always, it depends. And one person is going to have a hundred different answers depending on the different situation. So I can't give you what the answer is. One thing I can tell you, though. Your decision on what to do will be based partly on your level of training. If you have trained to move and shoot and use cover and shoot while moving forward or shoot while moving backwards and shoot while moving sideways and engage multiple targets, 
you're in a much better position than if all you've ever done is gone to an indoor range and shoot at paper targets where you can't move and they're not moving and you're not allowed to draw and, and do all that. If you're serious about this concealed carry thing, if you're serious about protecting yourself and your family, you really do have to go get the kind of training I'm talking about. And then you have to go practice that kind of stuff because it's perishable. Your skills go down if you don't keep them up. It really is as simple as that. Okay, we are 10 years, 10 years into the Heller decision. Some say we really didn't gain that much. Some say it was pretty good. Tell you what, when we come back, we'll talk about that with somebody who has been taking a good hard look at it. Heller, are we really getting the benefits of it? 